Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here this morning uh, for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, May 20th, 2023. Comes to you each morning. And on Saturdays, we uh, we consider the week past, but also uh, tomorrow, Sunday, to come. And the appointed text for tomorrow, usually the sermon is going to reflect the gospel reading, uh, but it's helpful to look a little bit more in depth at both the Old Testament and the epistle reading uh, to bring some richness and fullness to the whole day, of course, as well. So that's what we'll do today. Uh, there are people working all over the school um, to um, do some upkeep and some cleaning and whatnot here at the end of the school year. So um, if you're, uh, you're here, some banging in the background. That's what's going on. <laughs> okay. Uh, but don't worry about that. There it is. All right. So, uh, well, we always pray in the midst of this world, right? And all the things that are happening in the world around us, including school cleanup. So there you go. All right. Let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Um, He ascended into heaven, and on the third day rose again uh, from the dead. And sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. There we go. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Anybody else having problems hearing? Uh, it looks like it's all right on this time. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to pull it up on my phone. Oh, yeah. It's just fine on here. All right. Oh, you can't hear the hammers. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. All right. It's all good. In my Father's house, let's do our memory verse. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, verses 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. John 14, verses 2 through 3. Maybe you've heard this translated as, in, in my father's house are many rooms. Yeah, it can be translated either way. There, it is that kind of uh, odd metaphor, isn't it? That it's a house, but it has many mansions in it. Right? Uh, of course, the, uh, the metaphysics of eternity uh, are beyond comprehension. How so many named um, in Jesus will be gathered together into one, right? Uh, but what a beautiful gift and promise here from Jesus. <clears throat> okay. And our psalm for the week is Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, so our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his, all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Psalm 116. What a beautiful psalm. 
Uh, this is actually, I think, yeah, it's um, it's split into two psalms in the in the in the um, excuse me the Greek Psalter, uh, Psalm one fourteen and Psalm one fifteen um, in the Greek, and I don't remember where the break comes. Let me see. Mm, not exactly sure where the break would come. All right. So here, let's hear a meditation about this. Two psalms or one psalm, however you want to number it, right? What is given in the traditional Hebrew Psalter as Psalm 116 is listed as two discrete compositions in the canonical Greek version where they appear as Psalms 114 and 115. In these ponderings, they will be treated as two distinct psalms following uh, the Greek text and numbering. All right, so we'll hear the first part. It is instructive to compare the symmetric openings of these psalms, for each begins with a simple verb in the aorist tense, active voice, first person singular. That's grammar. Thus, Psalm 114 commences, or this psalm, I have loved a gapisa, and Psalm 115 begins, I have believed. All right, so he would say that the break comes here, verse 10. All right, so we're going to be dealing with the first nine verses then. We should also observe that the verb in each case is without direct object. This lack of direct objects followed following what are normally transitive verbs give them here what we may call a more general tone, right? I have loved, and then it's it's a broad statement, right? It's not specific. And I have believed also broadly. Not specified by particular objects, the loving and believing spoken of in these psalms rather point to an abiding intention of the soul. The voice in both these psalms is that of Christ our Lord. It is he who has says, I have loved I ha- and I have believed. Right? So this is a psalm, first and foremost, of Christ and his voice. Loving and believing, that is, are not simply religious requirements laid on the Christian conscience. They are, first of all, characteristics modeled in Christ the Lord. All love and all belief begin in Jesus. Any loving and any believing that we others may accomplish is an inner participation in his loving and his believing. For his loving and his believing form the font of our salvation. When in Psalm 114, or 116 in the beginning here, Jesus says, I have loved, the rest of the psalm shows that its special setting is the mystery of his suffering and death endured for the sake of our salvation and loving obedience. Firstly, Jesus did all these things because of his love for the Father. Quote, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me this commandment, so I do. John fourteen thirty one, Fitting for this Easter season, right? Secondly, Jesus did all these things because he loved us. Thus, St. Paul refers to our Lord simply as, quote, him who loved us, Romans eight thirty seven, And because he loved us, Jesus gave himself up to the death of the cross. The life which I now live in the flesh, wrote St. Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians two twenty. This self-offering of Jesus was the supreme proof of his love for us. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and given, and given himself for us, Ephesians 5.2. So in this psalm, which is especially concerned with the mystery of his sufferings, Jesus our Lord begins his prayer, I have loved. The Savior goes on to speak of the supplication that he offered in the context of his sufferings, beseeching God that if possible the cup be taken away. The sorrows... Um, of death encompassed me, the hazards of Hades found me out. Or in Hebrew, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. Affliction have I found and sorrow. And I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, deliver my soul. There it is, verse 4. Then abruptly and dramatically, the tone of the prayer changes to the hope nearly realized. And though his sufferings, uh, supplication has been answered already, merciful is the Lord and righteous. God has mercy on us. The Lord stands guard over the infants, or the simple. I was humbled, and he saved me. Return, O my soul, from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. Well-pleasing will I be in the sight of the Lord, in the land of the living. All right, so we have the resurrection here in verse 9. So you can see why the Greek has this as a separate, its own distinct psalm. The love of Christ made known in his suffering and death and resurrection, right? This and so many other psalms testify that the Lord's passion was a sustained act of worship. This interpretation of his death was perfectly obvious to early Christians who said of Christ that, quote, he offered up himself, Hebrews 7, 27, and who spoke of, quote, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, Hebrews 10, 10, 
and who described his self-oblation as, quote, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, Ephesians 5, verse 2. This is the language of the temple and of sacrificial worship, and we are probably so accustomed to hearing it that we have uh, lost all sense of how terribly strange and improbable it must have sounded when the Christians first began to speak this way of the unjust death inflicted on a just man. This event outsiders would have considered at, as, at best, a great tragedy, but for the Christian mind, the death of Jesus was not a mere miscarriage of human injustice or human justice. It was the supreme act of worship that endowed all mankind with God's justice. It was a single deed of such condign and consummate devotion as to render possible humanity's access to God for all time and into eternity. All right, and then he does the same thing, uh, but I'll spare you, uh, with the second half, the second half of our psalm or the second psalm in in the Greek text. Right. So, what does faith look like um, if in G, in the mind of Jesus? Right. The faithful die um, in faith. Right. We have that making vows before or confession before all people. Right lifting up the cup of salvation and calling on the name of the Lord, right? So to have no other gods is um, to call on God's name in prayer, second commandment. It's to um, remain steadfast in the hearing and receiving of God's word in divine in divine service, third commandment, right? Um, and doing so together um, with fellow Christians, right? In divine, in, in assembly, holy assembly, the Christian congregation, right? That's what faith looks like. That's what Jesus also uh, instantiated, I guess you might say, or brought into being, as he called disciples into his midst, and they gathered around him to receive his word and to call on God's name daily in prayer. Um, it is interesting that it's also daily. I, I think uh, I was meditating upon that this morning, and that uh, uh, I think once you start going about the habit of um, picking and choosing when you worship, um, worship suffers, and that there is a in the pattern of creation that uh, that God causes the sun to rise each day, um, you could see the sun rising as a call to prayer and the sun setting as well as a call to prayer or even noonday, if you like, or midday. And we, we don't think of creation as calling us to worship, but uh, the birds start singing. That means we should start singing. The sun rises. That means it's time that the Christ is coming again and we should uh, call upon him in prayer. Right. And uh, yeah, as soon as you start skipping, and picking and choosing when to pray, um, you know, outside of that normal intercession uh, or times of intercession, of course, when when you call upon him in prayer, um, I think it just, it, it fails, right? So I make this argument with the Sabbath day. I know that uh, as Lutherans, we don't hold that uh, any particular day must be the Sabbath, um, but for the sake of, well, I would say restraint of the sinful flesh in particular, um, but also for the benefit of receiving we designate a day and we faithfully, regularly attend to the word on that day. Um, but even, even the, I don't know how to, how to say this uh, gently, <laughs> um, but even those who consider themselves most Christian in our midst um, will pick and choose when they come to church on Sunday, if they do or if they don't, based off of all sorts of arbitrary reasons. It's, it's, it's incredible to me. And I can't get my head around it, not just because I'm the pastor, but because that's um, not how I think most of us were raised. I certainly wasn't. Yep. Every morning I open the window and praise the Lord. That's exactly right, Chris. I think that's, I think that's actually what creation is, is calling us to do at that moment. All right. Table of duties this week. Um, speaking of God ordering things for our good is, uh, to employers and supervisors first masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that, that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Ephesians 6 verse 9. To youth, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 through 6. All right, so our first reading for tomorrow um, is actually from Ezekiel. I mentioned this with, uh, when we started the book of Ezekiel, that for most people, they know two chapters, <laughs> and it's chapters 36 and 37, maybe 34 as well with uh, Good Shepherd. Yeah, so maybe three chapters. Uh, but they don't, it's only in this one section uh, where we've already made the turn, the prophet has made the turn towards restoration, towards redemption, towards uh, eternity. Uh, and we skip all the part of the beginning, which, yes, it's a little bit more difficult. We're in chapter 20-something uh, for adult uh, catechesis. Uh, but I think... 
the thing we've learned, at least I hope you've learned, is that the language of Ezekiel of the prophet uh, is widely used by, especially by Jesus, but also then by the apostles. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, second commandment, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your, all your idols. And I will give you a heart, new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. All right, so you see there at the end the restoration. Um, you also note that the restoration comes despite the people. Um, this is a, a failing of pastors, I think. We talked about this yesterday on the Band Books podcast, Pastor Riley and I, in that we think, um, I think, to our detriment, we think it's our job to convince other people to believe in Jesus or to follow him. And it's not. It's our job to proclaim Jesus to them, but it is the Spirit's job, actually, um, to turn their hearts and to return them. And actually, the, the Spirit does this despite them, despite their objections, right? So, uh, re referring to the Sabbath day, that's a great example. Um, the job of the pastor is to proclaim, come to church. It's time for church, right? To ring the bells, um, to announce the service, um, to um, assume or to even uh, present that this is what Christians do. Now, if um, people deny that or deny the work of the Spirit who is calling them into worship, uh, that's not on the pastor then, right? And it never was on the pastor pastor is just, he has a specific vocation. And actually, you do too. Um, so you tell your children, come to church, right? And they come to church. And it, he does so despite them. Uh, we find this out with Ezekiel, that many of those who are in exile in in um, Babylon, after 70 years, they don't even want to come back, <laughs> even though he's calling them to return to the land he promised to them. They don't even want to come back. They've established a new life, you know? They've got business or whatever it is. And that's at play, I think, with um, Jesus, when he says, you know, I've married a wife, or I've got the, um, I've got uh, the land to attend to. I think you, you, mm, you want to think of that parable in light of uh, the exiles who don't return to the promised land, but remain in Babylon. All right. Uh, this is also the language of Ezekiel 36 here is, I think, widely used by us uh, about, about the heart and the heart of stone and the hardened heart, right? We have that in the Exodus narrative, of course, with Pharaoh. But here it's actually, we're, the, the people of God are being described like Pharaoh, whose hearts have been hardened uh, and will not receive God's word. Right? But what's he going to do about that? He's going to take that heart and give you a new heart, right? a heart of flesh that receives the Spirit. Okay, um, The language of sprinkling with clean water is interesting, yeah, because there you've got that, again, like we saw with the Psalm, Psalm 116, you've got the language of the temple, and before that the tabernacle, with the... Um, the ritual purifications that would happen with sprinkling of water, which of course we also hear as baptismal language now. Um, this term clean water is actually not used anywhere else in the Old Testament. So when we get to studying this, uh, remind me to point out kind of the background of that. But clean water or living water, Jesus will actually talk about, which is a distinction between just, uh, what do we want to say, uh, plain water, to quote the catechism. It's not just plain water, but it is water included in God's command and combined with God's word. All right. Um, also, we have this we have this heart of stone and this heart of flesh. Now, this is a metaphor, of course. Uh, in the Old Testament, the heart is, was considered the seat of the mind or the will. All right. Now, it's different because we think of the the mind or the thought or the will coming from our brain. Like, I make choices here. Um, but in the Old Testament, um, Knowledge and, and decisions come from the heart, right? And then uh, emotions actually come from the gut, right? So this is intellect, this is will, and then your gut is where, where you make emotional kind of uh, reactions, right? And uh, you, you actually see this language 
obviously with Pharaoh and, and hardening the heart in Exodus in the Exodus account. Um, but uh, you also have understanding from the heart coming. You hear a, a contemporary prophet Isaiah using that language in Isaiah six. All right, this I think this this text is uh, substantially in the background for people um, when it comes to faith and the way we talk about faith. So um, Luther uses it in a couple places in the large catechism. So um, he clearly uh, knew this text, or it was, uh, you know, as part of his own language as as a teacher. Uh, listen to what he says in, in the sacrament of baptism. He says uh, this is paragraph thirty five. But if the new spirits say, as they are accustomed, still baptism is itself a work, and you say works are of no use for salvation, what then becomes of faith? Answer. Yes, our works indeed do nothing for salvation. Baptism, baptism, however, is not our work, but God's, right, to this point. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, the language of our text, right? And actually despite them. For as we stated, you must completely distinguish Christ's baptism from a bathkeeper's baptism. God's works are saving and necessary for salvation. They do not exclude, but demand faith, for without faith they could not be grasped. By allowing the water to be poured upon you, you have not yet received baptism in a way that benefits you at all. Right? So it's not the doing of the thing that benefits you. Keep going. But it becomes beneficial to you if you yourself, if you have yourself baptized with this thought. <coughs> and this is the thought of faith. This is according to God's command and ordinance. And besides, it is done in God's name. Right? I will put my name on you, or I'll do this for the sake of my great name. This is definitely a baptismal text, isn't it? Ezekiel 36. In this way, you may receive the promised salvation in the water. Now, um, your fist cannot do this, nor your body, but the heart must believe it. So you see plainly that there is no work done here by us, but a treasure which God gives gives us and faith grasps. It is like the benefit of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, which is not a work, but a treasure included in a word. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, I lost my spot here. Hold on. Oh, yeah. Here we go. Um, later on, uh, paragraph 70, how about 74? Here you see that baptism, both in its power and meaning, includes also the third sacrament, which has been called repentance or absolution. It is really nothing other than baptism, right? So now Luther in the large catechism says that we don't consider absolution a second, sac a separate sacrament because it's included in baptism. Absolution is included in the supper, right? What else is repentance but a serious attack on the old man? that his lust be restrained, and entering into new life. Therefore, if you live in repentance, you walk in baptism. For baptism not only illustrates such a new life, but it also produces, begins, and exercises it. For in baptism, dying and rising, right? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, for in baptism are given grace, the spirit, the power to suppress the old man, so that the new man may come forth and become strong. Our baptism abides forever. Right here, that even though someone should fall from baptism and sin, still we always have access to it. So may we subdue the old man again. That's really kind of distracting. All right, here we go. But we do not need to be sprinkled with water again. All right, so sprinkle clean water here. Even if we were put under the water a hundred times, it would still be only one baptism, even though the work and sign continue and remain. Repentance, therefore, is nothing other than a return and approach to baptism. We repeat and do what we began before, but abandoned. All right. Um, Luther also talks about the heart, uh, excuse me, in regards to um, a sacrament of the altar. Yeah, listen to this. Um, so when, why should you receive the sacrament? Remember, because of your sin, um, because of uh, the world, but then also because of the devil going about you, right? You hear that in the uh, Christian questions and their answers, all right? Therefore, try this and practice it well. Be sure to examine yourself or look about, about you a little and just keep to the scriptures. If even then you still feel nothing, you have even more misery to regret both to God and to your brother. Then take this advice and have others pray for you. Do not stop until the stone is removed from your heart. There it is. Then indeed, the distress will not uh, fail to become clear, and you will find that you have sunk twice as deep as any other poor sinner. You are as much, you are much more in need of the sacrament against the misery, which unfortunately you do not see. But with God's grace, you may feel your misery more and become hungrier for the sacrament, especially since the devil doubles his force against you. 
right? This is encouragement to receive the sacrament. All right. And then in regards to um, uh, the will, the human will, we also need to talk about the heart. Remember, the heart is the seat of the will, right? The, 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 um, the deciding muscle, if you like, right? So um, our formula of Concord says this. Uh, therefore, this is clear as it is further declared in the article on original sin, to which we now refer for the sake of brevity. The free will from its own natural powers cannot work or agree to work anything for its own conversion, righteousness, and salvation, or follow, believe, or agree with the Holy Spirit, who through the gospel offers a person grace and salvation. And from its inborn wicked, rebellious nature, it resists God and his will with hostility, unless it is enlightened and controlled by God's Spirit. All right, so again, what you note here is that the only way for you to believe, to follow Christ, um, to do any good, is to have God give you his Spirit right, and give you a new heart to which the Spirit dwells, right? So this whole idea of the free will, um, at least according to the Bible, before God in particular, the will, the human will that we're born with, uh, according to the flesh, can only choose uh, to reject God, disobey him, right? You can't convince people to become a Christian, in other words. They will only resist, only rebel, right? Because of this, the Holy Scriptures compare the heart of the unregenerate person to a hard stone. It does not yield to the one who touches it, but resists. It's like a rough, black, and wild, unmanageable beast. That's from Jeremiah 2. This does not mean that since the fall a person is no longer a rational creature or is converted to God without hearing and meditating on the divine word. It does, it does not mean that a person fall, or fails to understand outward worldly things or to do his free, of his free will um, do or abstain from doing anything good or evil, right? So this is always the key. Yes, you have a will um, outwardly before one another, before the neighbor, to do this or not do that, right? But before God, the heart is is hard right? and cannot choose to believe and follow God. And that's all, of course, before your baptism. But after your baptism, of course, then the will is, is uh, the heart is changed. The will, a new will is given to you. It's the will of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, right? So, um, for again, uh, by the flesh, he is rebellious and hostile to God's will unless the Holy Spirit is effective on him and kindles and works in him faith and other abilities pleasing to God and obedience. All right? So, without, it's without God's, holy, without God's Holy Spirit, um, there is no good will. There is no good choice uh, to do what is right or good or true uh, before God in particular uh, in regards to faith. Now, um, we want to be careful to distinguish that that the human will before one another can certainly do outward righteousness, right? So you have um, even godly pagans. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Um, as far as virtues and even love, things that appear to be love and whatnot, um, you have people who don't believe in Christ who still do good works, right? To benefit the neighbor, of course. Right? But they, but they, they merit nothing before God, of course. Only Christ's shed blood does that, and they, they aren't an indication of faith necessarily. Although faith is bound to perform good works, but good works don't necessarily mean that the person is faithful, right? So you got to get the order of things right. All right, that's probably enough on this, uh, but you can see how profound um, an influence this chapter has on um, our understanding of both the will and the heart from the, and, and the work of the Spirit and, as well, which connects to the gospel text for tomorrow. All right, our epistle for tomorrow is from 1 Peter chapter 4. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Above all, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For, quote, love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Right. Um, I think this is the extended ending, but we'll include it tomorrow, of course, because it has that promise of the Spirit um, who rests upon us. And again, the Spirit who works in us, the, the, the works that you saw above, the good stewardship, for example, and the love and the hospi hospitality. 
Um, by the way, you'll note also that um, the, the good that Christians do is often rejected by the world and called blasphemy. All right. Which is interesting as well. All right. Um, any other background that we need here? Uh, there may be. Let me look here. Yeah, in many Jewish traditions, especially Daniel 12, the end of the age would be preceded by a period of great suffering, right? The end of all things is at hand. Uh, therefore, um, there is this call for seriousness, for prayer, for love. So uh, and the, the suggestion is that this is a reflection on, um, you know, bringing people uh, to, to live and to take advantage of the time while, while it is still day, for example, as Jesus describes it. All right. Yeah, I think that's good on that. Let's. Um, but let's consider how this is used in our in our. It's actually directly cited um, in our Lutheran confessions in a couple places. Um, so it's a pretty substantial text. Of course, it was the appointed epistle text for this Sunday um, at the time of the Reformation. Of course, uh, preceding the the epistle and gospel text we have each Sunday have been in use since the at least the fifth or sixth century. So um, they would hear it every year, just like we do. Uh, so listen to. Um, this is the article on love and the fulfilling of the law, All right? So, uh, let's see, where should we jump in? Yeah, let's, let's start here. For this reason, um, he, Paul, says that love is a bond or connection to show that he speaks about the binding and joining together of many members of the church. In all families and in all states, unity should be nourished by mutual offices, and peace cannot be maintained unless people overlook and forgive certain mistakes among themselves. Right, A church that cannot forgive um, cannot remain unified, in other words. In a similar way, Paul commands that there should be love in the church in order that it may preserve unity, bear with the harsher manners of the brethren as there is need, and overlook certain less serious mistakes. This must happen, or else the church will fly apart into various schisms, and hostilities and factions and heresies will arise from the schisms. All right, So we, we do have to discern um, what battles we ought to fight. Um, I <laughs> I won't share this. I, I'll, I'll share this with you, but I, I won't send you the picture. Um, but in the workbook for the Synodical Convention this summer, there's a resolution um, to require, it's just a brief one, to require the seminaries to teach um, the handbook of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod um, to pastors in training so that they conform themselves to the handbook. All right now, the handbook is full of all sorts of bylaws and rules that nobody has read. All right, and most people don't know and certainly can't cite or quote, right? It's there for, in times of need. Most of those bylaws were generated in times of conflict. Um, and so they are there uh, when, when need to be called upon. The secretary of the Senate or of the district um, has an awareness of these things and knows how to use them um, in times of need, right? Uh, but do we have to teach everybody? Is it really worth taking it to the floor and arguing about it and saying, yeah, damn. This seems to be a minor thing and actually could cause all sorts of distress because we're not guided by the The bylaws aren't uh, the sole rule and norm for faith and life in our churches. No, the word of God is, right? It's just an example of kind of being nitpicky and uh, not prioritizing what we spend our time and effort on, all right? Um, peace cannot be maintained unless people overlook and forgive certain mistakes among themselves. Of course, um, serious mistakes that lead, that are false doctrine must be corrected. So they don't have that in mind. Unity cannot last, is necessarily dissolved, whenever the bishops impose heavier burdens upon the people or when they have no respect for weakness in people. Dissensions arise when people judge too severely the conduct of teachers or despise the teachers because of certain less serious faults. For then other kind of teaching and other teachers are sought after. On the other hand, perfection, that is, the church's integrity, is preserved when the strong bear with the weak, when the people put up with the faults in the conduct of their teachers, and when bishops make some allowances for the people's weakness. The books of all the wise are full of these teachings about fairness, namely, that in everyday life we should make many allowances mutually for the sake of common peace. Paul teaches about this frequently, both here and elsewhere. Therefore, the adversaries do not argue carefully from the term perfection that love justifies. Paul speaks of common integrity and peace. Ambrose interprets the passage this way. Excuse me. Just as a building is said to be perfect or entire when all its parts are fitly joined together with one another. Furthermore, it is disgraceful for the adversaries to preach so much about how about love while they do not show it anywhere. What are they doing now? 
They are tearing apart churches. They are writing laws in blood and asking the most merciful prince, the emperor, to enforce them. They are killing priests and other good men. If any one of them has slightly indicated that he does not entirely agree with their clear abuses, what they are doing is not consistent with their claims of love, which if the adversaries would follow, the churches would be peaceful and the state would have peace. This turmoil would be lessened if the adversaries would stop being so bitter about certain traditions. These traditions are useless for godliness and are hardly observed by those very persons who most earnestly defend them. The adversaries easily forget themselves, but do not likewise forgive others, according to the passage in the poet, I forgive myself. Maevius said some Latin poet. But what they do is very far from those praises of love that they recite here from Paul. They do not understand the word any more than the walls of a building that echo it back. They cite Also, this sentence from Peter, love covers a multitude of sins. Peter also speaks of love towards one's neighbor because he joins this passage to the rule that commands love for one another. No apostle would have imagined, A, our love overcomes sin and death, or B, love satisfies God's wrath and reconciles us to God while excluding Christ as mediator, or C, love in and of itself is righteousness before God. So um, this is always a problem. They say Christians, you know, the model... You know it's a mark of, of the Christian church if there is love. And, and that there is a truth to that. It is the love of Christ for sinners proclaimed and received um, under body and blood, right? In the baptism of uh, washing of, of water and renewal, right? But love for Christians is always imperfect, uh, incomplete, until the last day because of the sinful flesh, right? That still clings to us. So love does not justify uh, love, what does love do? The love of Christ justifies. Um, our love does not save us. Right? And so our love is looked actually um, in um, showing mercy and, and being at peace, um, being gracious with one another. Um, and even in the midst of like exhorting against unbelief or against um, not keeping the Sabbath, not coming to church, even that's done in love. It's like, no, this is, it's just good for you, you know, to be disciplined. So be, be disciplined, right? Hear God's word regularly and consistently. It'll be good for you. Trust, trust me. All right. Now, if they don't do it, I'm not going to kick them out of the church or something like that. Uh, I'm just going to continue to exhort them um, to be faithful. Right? And so um, we have to be careful about, I suppose, how we understand this love. Um, this love is a, a fruit of faith. Faith worked by the Holy Spirit, you know, in that new heart that he has given us through our baptism, through the washing of clean water. All right. Uh... Yeah, and so this really connects, I think, to the Eighth Commandment as well. For example, uh, bearing false witness. False witness, then, is everything that cannot be properly proved. No one should make public or declare for truth what is not obvious by sufficient evidence. In short, whatever is secret should be allowed to remain secret, or at any rate, should be secretly rebuked, as we shall hear. Therefore, if you meet an idle tongue that betrays and slanders someone, contradict such a person promptly to his face, Proverbs 10, so that he may blush. Then many a person will hold his tongue who otherwise would bring some poor man into bad repute, from which he would not freely or easily free himself. For honor and good name are easily taken away, but not easily restored. All right. Um, so I, we actually had a um, particular situation here where um, someone was being accused. There, there was someone making accusations, actually still making accusations against uh, a number of people in the congregation. Uh, without evidence. Now, actually, some of the accusations turned out to be true um, in hindsight, but at the time, it was not theirs to share, right? They had suspicions. Well, speak to that person privately. That's as much as you can do. Um, but speaking it publicly and, t- and gossiping about it um, brought, actually did no good and actually brought great damage upon uh, both the faith and the life of a couple uh, members of our congregation, right? Um, so, uh, such gossiping must be stopped. It doesn't mean that there's no, that it's not possible that it's true. It might be possible. It might be true, um, but it's not yours to share, right? Um, there is a, a place and a time for things to be shared, for the truth to be spoken. Um, and for example, civil government, preachers, father and mother are, are not forbidden to speak out against evil, right? Um, but it is forbidden for, generally speaking, for those not in such offices to speak evil against their neighbor. Interesting, right? We don't think of it that way. We think, oh, well, you know, a public figure, well, we don't have to protect their reputation. Well, actually, you do, right? Uh, Chris says, I do love Christ deeply, but the people in a church 
that don't love and I cannot attend anymore. Yeah. Um, there is a way that, that a lack of love um, can bring great harm, right? And what, what we actually call for there is repentance for the forgiveness of sins and then trust that forgiveness will work um, love. I think it's right to suspect that a Christian that, or a church that shows no love for one another uh, even has the spirit any longer, right? Um, look at how those Christians love one another is what we see in Acts, all right? But a lack of love is not necessarily mean a lack of faith, uh, but it does beg the question. Maybe that's a good way to say it, you know? Hmm. Uh, yeah, so for example, uh, just one more paragraph here from Luther on the Eighth Commandment. Now we have the sum and general understanding of this commandment, the Eighth Commandment. Let no one do any harm to his neighbor with his tongue, whether friend or foe. Do not speak evil of him, no matter whether it is true or false, unless it is done by commandment or for his reformation. Let everyone use his tongue and make it serve for, for the best of everyone else, to cover up his neighbor's sins and infirmities, to excuse them, conceal, and garnish them with his own reputation. The chief reason for this should be that the one that Christ declares in the, in the gospel, where he includes all commandments about our neighbor, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Matthew 7. Okay. So um, here, what, what is Paul dealing with, or Peter dealing with, I should say? I think he's giving us um, some of the examples of what the fruit of that new heart looks like. Right? Not necessarily. To each one is given and, you know, distinctly. Right? But it's given for the sake of love for the sake of faith, ultimately, in Christ. All right. And, of course, others will reject you for showing them love. All right. Uh, our hymn for this week, The Head That Once Was Crowned With Thorns. Um, share a little bit about that hymn for you. And let me find here in the resource. Often used on the Feast of the Ascension, this hymn by Thomas Kelly, 1769 to 1855, finds its inspiration not only from the words of Holy Scripture, primarily Hebrews 2 verse 10, but also from another work inspired by the Scripture. A lengthy poem by John Bunyan entitled One Thing is Needful, or Serious Meditations Upon the Four Lasting Things, Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell, published in 1665. In fact, the first stanza of the hymn is nearly identical to the 20, or excuse me, 39th quatrain of the third grouping. <laughs> it is entitled Heaven, and it reads as follows. This is the Bunyan um, poem, One Thing is Needful. That head that once was crowned with thorns shall now with glory shine. That heart that broken with the scorns shall flow with love divine. All right. Well, that's interesting. So drawn from, from Bunyan. Interesting. And also an Ascension Day hymn. Uh, how about the tune? Magnus. First given this name in William Riley's Parochial Harmony, 1762, London, Apparently, according to Darling Davison, after the impressive church of St. Magnus the Martyr near London Bridge, rebuilt by Christopher Wren, who's famous architect, in 1690, and bishop. Hmm. All right. So let's sing this Ascension hymn. Same tune. 
God, the giver of all that is good, by your holy inspiration, grant that we may think those things that are right, and by your merciful guiding, accomplish them. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Gracious Lord, you have given us great responsibilities and authority as employers and supervisors of others. Teach us by your grace and mercy to treat our workers and those who are under us with respect, understanding, and compassion. Give us a humble spirit toward them and help us to see our workers as gifts of God who depend upon us for our, their livelihood and who enable us to be of greater service to others for whom we perform our life's work. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. O Lord, as you in humility and faith submitted yourself to Mary and Joseph and to every authority instituted among men for our salvation, teach us to submit to our elders and to believe that you will accomplish your good purposes in our lives and in the lives of others through such honor and respect. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We pray this day for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray today in Thanksgiving with Barb, celebrating her birthday, with Greta, celebrating her baptism. We pray for the households of our church, especially Chris and Nicole, Crystal, Sarah, Garrett, Jerome, and Sherry. We thank God for the preservation of faith amongst us. We pray for our catechumens, Christian, Wyatt, Aaliyah, Lydia, Charlie, Kaylee, Kimberly, Allie, Dasha, and Teresa. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Dale and Pam, Joe, Kelsey, Marion, Christopher, Marcy, Brad, Gus and Eileen, Ron, Doug, Lenore, Hosea, Pat, Wade, Wendell, and Darlene. Pray for our homebound, Marcella, Walt, Dan, Paul, Merlin, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially the work of Lutherans for Life, our mission for this month. And we ask that God preserve and increase hope amongst us and for the government and those in authority. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe, may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, that's our congregation of prayer for today, Saturday, May 20th, 2023. It's good to have you with us here this morning um, to prepare for tomorrow. Hopefully you, you can see some of the themes that are coming out from uh, the, the gospel text, which is, again, John 15, uh, 26 to 6 verse 4 uh, which is again the promise of the Holy Spirit um, in this intermediate time in the ascension time between our, the ascension which we celebrated on Wednesday and um, our the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost a week from Sunday all right and uh, what 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 a gift the Holy Spirit is to us um, to call gather enlighten and sanctify us in the Christian church and then uh, to keep us with Jesus Christ in the one true faith and then by that new heart even to work in love um, 
for one another, right? Which is which is known in any number of ways, but protecting life, uh, liberty, uh, reputation, marriage, right? Um, but also encouraging one another to, um, well, to hear Jesus, to receive Jesus in word and sacrament, right? So I encourage you to be with us tomorrow at uh, 9.30 a.m. for divine service. By the way, uh, beginning in June, our divine service, Sunday divine service, will be at 9 o'clock, so a half an hour earlier. We're going to try that. And um, so it means every every <laughs> everything we do in the morning will be at 9 o'clock all week. I don't know uh, if that's convenient for you or not. And then uh, Wednesday uh, evening, divine service will be at 6.30 um, starting in June as well. All right. So make plans. Uh, just bumping it up a half an hour. There were um, actually... About half the, of the people who responded to our poll um, wanted it even earlier than nine, but uh, there's a few reasons why we didn't want to do that. So anyway, yep. So uh, Lord be with you all. Keep you safe. I hope to see you in the morning for uh, service and for Bible study um, to study God's word together as well. It's all right. So see you tomorrow. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.